0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What does it mean to be born in the purple? What lasting legacy did the Byzantine Empire have on how we eat dinner? And what does Byzantine even mean? Well, in today's episode, we'll be answering these questions and more, as Professor Judith Heron responds to listener questions and internet search queries about the thousand-year-old history of the Byzantine Empire. Putting your questions to her was Kev Lotchen, Deputy Editor of BBC History Revealed and Section Editor of History Extra.
3: Today we're going to be discussing the Byzantine Empire and joining us to explore this topic is Judith Heron. Judith is Professor Emerita and Constantine Leventis Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Classics at King's College London. She's an expert on the Byzantine Empire and the author of a history of it entitled Byzantium, the Surprising Life of a Medieval Empire. Welcome to the podcast, Judith. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. As we have all of the episodes in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, the topics we're going to be talking about today are based on questions submitted by you, our listeners, and also some of the top Google search queries. But I wonder if we should start with a question submitted by DBMail on Instagram, who asked quite simply, where did it begin? So I wonder maybe if we could chat through it, not just how the Anton number starts, maybe a little bit of scene section of the geography and chronology of when we're talking about. Right. So
2: Byzantium was a small colony on the Bosphorus. That is the bit of river that separates Europe from Asia. So it's right at the neck of the, of the connection between the Aegean Sea, Mediterranean, and the Black Sea. And in on this very deep cleavage, which is still a very busy waterway, much used by Soviet tankers, Constantine the Great, Constantine the I, who lived from three, reigned from 306 to 336, he founded a new city on that site on that, in that place. Geographically it was very strategic. He chose an important crossover, a crossover between Europe and Asia, Asia Minor because that's Turkey today. So between Greece and Turkey, and between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, which is between basically Africa and Russia. So it's very, very important for communication. And at the spot where Byzantium Byzantium had been founded, there was a control, a strategic control over shipping up and down, as well as military communication across. So he set it up in 324 AD when he ploughed a furrow which marked the new city wall of this this city. It was much bigger than the original Byzantium. It had sea on two sides and he built an enormous wall between the two bits of sea so that it was like a triangle that was very, very well protected. And that new city he called the city of Constantine, Constantinople. But he also called it New Rome, And from the very beginning, he saw it as a replacement of old Rome in Italy. It was a new Rome in the east set up on the Bosphorus where he could control uh, all the communication between east and west and further east towards the Persian Empire, which was the great enemy of of the Roman Empire.
3: So we've just talked about it was, he called the city New Rome. He It was named Constantinople after him. So one thing Josephine Wong on Facebook asks is then, what is the origin of the word Byzantine? So does that denote a historical period, an ethnic group, or a cultural legacy with an aesthetic style, she asks?
2: Well, Josephine's quite right to ask because it's very complicated. Byzantium was the name of this Greek colony set up by Greeks um, uh, on this strategic promontory, and they chose a very good spot. But that little city was completely replaced by Constantinople, now Istanbul. And when the, uh, and, and the people who lived there occasionally said, "Yes, we are the inhabitants of Byzantium, and they call themselves Byzantines. But that was because they lived in that city, and they, uh, no, they knew that it had a long history they thought the name um, had evolved from a ruler, a very ancient ruler called Byzas, who'd married somebody called Antes, or they'd fought together with Antes, and so Byzantium had been put together in that way. It's a false etymology. However, the adjective Byzantine is just derived from that old name, and it was picked up by 16th century antiquarians Who were looking for an adjective to describe what they saw as a continuation of the Roman Empire in the East, based on Constantinople. And that name has stuck, although it is very misleading, but it is only the adjective for that city and that civilization. It does not um, indicate an ethnic group but it does certainly become associated with a cultural legacy with a, a very important aesthetic style.
3: In terms of um, getting a sense of how broad the Byzantine Empire is, how long does it persist and how far does it grow?
2: Well, it has a very, very long life because Constantinople was only finally captured for in permanent uh, permanently taken over by the Ottoman Turks in 1453. So that's over a millennium of Byzantine culture based in Constantinople, with with the exception of a break in the 13th century. Because in 1204, the crusaders of the Fourth Crusade, led by the Venetians, captured the city and established a Latin empire of Constantinople with a Latin emperor and a Latin bishop. And Latin monks and everybody from the West was invited to go and occupy as colonisers to occupy the empire. But the Byzantines who'd been forced into exile fought back. And in 1261, they regained possession of the city and the then Emperor Michael VIII walked into the city holding an icon of the Virgin Mary saying, God has returned uh, the city to our hands. So they felt it was divine power as much as military power that had given them back their great center and their great base where they continued to live for another couple of hundred years. That period from 1261 to 1453 is a period of shrinking, of reduction, of not decline in terms of cultural achievement or interesting developments, but it isn't a period of growth. The great period of growth for the Byzantine Empire is between the 9th and the 12th century, when it was at its height, when it was really powerful, very, very significant in medieval history, with connections both to the West and to the Far East. Um, That is the period when it was probably at its greatest geographical extent, covering a large part of the Balkans, all of Greece, parts of southern Italy and Sicily, the islands of the Aegean, most of Turkey, parts of northern Syria, and a very large colony north of the Black Sea, which extended uh, north into Russia, where, of course, there was a very important Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, but Russian Orthodox um, presence, as those as the Russians were converted to Christianity by Byzantine missionaries. So there was an enormous extension into the Balkans and Russia and a very considerable and wealthy part of the Near East, which was still under Constantinople's rule.
3: So much to unpick there. Um, I, I think we should probably move first to within the Byzantine Empire and how they viewed themselves. And there's a question that's come in from Ian Beeston on Instagram, who asks, was the Byzantine Empire recognisably the same as the Roman Empire of antiquity? Yes, that's a, a very interesting question, because it obviously
2: was to the extent that the people that lived in the Byzantine Empire always called themselves Romans, felt of themselves as inheritors of the Roman Empire. But at the same time, most of them spoke Greek and they also knew that they had uh, therefore had access to the ancient Greek world. So they were both inheritors from Greece and Rome, and they managed to combine those two very different traditions in their own culture. So, for example, in Roman terms, they knew about how to build Roman roads, how to fight in Roman armies, how to construct fortresses and they had Roman law. A very, very significant backbone of the empire was its reliance on Roman law. And from the Greeks, they inherited a great love of Homer, of all the Greek poets, of all the dramatists. They knew the plays of Sophocles, Aristophanes, all that culture they knew because they could read it. Once they'd been educated in ancient Greek, they could read it. They spoke it. They knew Greek. So they understood what the ancient Greeks had achieved in mathematics, in history writing, in poetry. And they studied that diligently in schools, while they also understood that they had to maintain the Roman traditions, which um, included things like the existence of a senate, the notion of an emperor who was very uh, supreme, not quite a god, but very much uh, appointed to rule over everyone else with autocratic powers and with the Senate to control and adapt. And a very significant element is the tax system and a good strong currency. One of the most uh, important bequests from the Roman world was the idea that taxes should be paid in good currency in good gold, and that the empire would be defended with the money that was thus raised, the court would be organized. Everything would be uh, mediated through a strong currency, and ordinary people would pay their taxes in that currency, and it would not be devalued. And that's one of the great achievements of the Byzantine Empire, because for over 700 years, they maintained the gold standard that had been set up by Constantine I.
3: This is into another question that's come in from Twitter, from Dad Dadarist, who asks, was the Roman legacy and heritage, which we've just discussed a bit there, still significant to Byzantine emperors centuries after the fall of the Western Roman emperor? Most particularly,
2: because they then felt that they were the only last survivors and they had to sustain all those traditions very clearly. And so they did they were also very they weren't terribly concerned about what had happened in old rome and this is a very uh, interesting point why did they not mind why did they not worry more about the sacking of rome by the goths in 410 and so on they had their new rome and they knew that constantinople had been founded as new Rome, and it was in a sense the better, just the newer, the more modern Rome. And it brought with it all their Roman associations, which they wished to sustain, and they felt they were sustaining right to the end of the empire. There's a very amazing speech that the last emperor made before the assault of the Ottoman Turks, and he addressed the local people who were fighting on the walls, and he said, ''Romans, we are defending our empire.'' And he said, "We are Christians, and we are defending Christian faith. And out there, these are the infidels; these are the barbarians."
3: Um, it's kind of two questions here, which are kind of relevant. Um, one is from M H F Q on Instagram, who asks, "When and why did power switch from Rome to Constantinople?" But also, I just more broadly, a Google question was, "Why is Constantinople important?" And we talked a little at the beginning about how. its location, but what is it about it that made it so attractive to foreign powers?
2: Constantinople was very important because it became such an important centre of patronage, of administration, of political control. It became the centre of religious control through the patriarch, the Bishop of Constantinople, who was known as Patriarch, but then there were patriarchs also in Alexandria. Antioch Jerusalem and Rome because of course the word Pope is this it means the same as patriarch so Constantinople was tremendously important as the seat of government the law courts were there the courts of appeal the activities associated with particular gold and silver work metal the control of precious metals was based in the there. The, inside the great palace, there were workshops that produced the most beautiful silks. They were woven on with silk thread that was not known about in the West until the 9th and 10th centuries. And there were jewellers working with jewels that were imported from India and Ceylon and further afield. And of course, not only was it strategically placed between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea and between Europe and Asia, but it became a great center uh, of culture which was sought after by many non-Greek, non-Roman tribes, people who'd always lived outside the Greco-Roman world. The Bulgarians, for example, the Bulgars were very anxious to conquer Constantinople. They didn't succeed, but they set up their own Imitation of Constantinople in medieval Bulgaria. And they were converted to Orthodoxy rather than to Latin Catholic faith. Um, And they became Christian uh, after a long, long debate about whether to adopt the religion that was promoted in Constantinople or in Old Rome. It was a very great center of cultural achievement, intellectual achievement, and all young people who wanted a very good education boys and girls, were sent to Constantinople where they could go to the best schools. So it really was a a centre of excellence which attracted provincial inhabitants from the periphery of the empire as well as outsiders from beyond the empire. They all wanted to visit the city and uh, to admire its, its architecture and so on. I mean, it had spectacular monuments.
3: One thing I'd like to ask quickly, based on the Roman influence in Byzantium, is about uh, chariot teams. This is something asked by joemd123 on Instagram. He just wants to know about chariot teams and their influence, because from what I gather, it it's more than just a sporting team. It is indeed, um, and in, and the chariot teams came over from Rome and
2: from all the other Roman centres in the West, where chariot racing had been such a passion. And it was set up in Constantinople, and there was an enormous hippodrome built right beside the palace. Indeed, there was a special box where the emperor could sit and watch. And when the winning team had gone round the hippodrome five times, or something, Uh, the winning team, the driver of the winning team would lead his chariot up to the imperial box and the emperor would stand up and and give him a laurel wreath uh, as the victor. Um, So the circus um, factions, as they're called, these teams of charioteers, they also arranged all the popular entertainments that came in between the races. And we know that it was very necessary to have these intervals because many chariots were broken. Horses were were damaged, I mean, killed. Um, The racing was very violent. So there was always a lot of debris to clear away after the race. And in that moment when people were carrying off the dead horses and sometimes the wounded charioteers and clearing up the debris, there'd be dancers, there'd be gymnasts, there'd be people walking on high wires, there'd be people showing off their dancing bears or acrobats with on camels all sorts of entertainments of that sort which involved men and women and often animals dancing animals and this was for the popular for the for the populace that sat in their seats and couldn't really leave because it was an enormous hippodrome with a huge 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 banks of seats like a very very large football stadium today so they had to stay there and wait for the next race and this was the entertainment to keep them busy. And we can be quite sure that there was probably fast food sold up and down, and drinks being passed around, and everything else. It was a very great um, celebration and, and day out to have a day at the at the hippodrome and watch the races. But it wasn't just um, uh, chariots and horse racing. There was a tremendous um, investment by the blues and the greens. The reds and the whites were the two other colors that got, came from Rome, but they don't seem to have survived as long. But the blues and the greens organized all these popular entertainments as well. And they were a powerful force. On occasions, the emperor would ask them to go out and defend the city, to fight for the city, to stand on the walls and, you know, throw javelins, shoot arrows, whatever else they were going to do for against attacks. Or they were um, also invited to entertain visitors inside the great palace at dinners. And they also had a lot of musical instruments. Because of of the dancing, they had to make enough music for the dancers. And so they had organs and double pipes and harps and lyres. And we can see those Uh, instruments shown in various illustrations and sculptures, which means that we know quite clearly that the blues and the greens had musicians attached uh, to their ranks. If, for example, the emperor decreed something that was very unpopular and people in Constantinople wanted to protest, it was very convenient for them to get the blues and the greens or one or the other on their side so that when they had a demonstration and they marched to the palace shouting, down with the official who's put up our taxes, or please sack the man who's given us dirty bread. We don't, we want real bread. Or, you know, where's the wine supply for this week? Things like that. Um, And then, of course, more serious political revolutions, down with the emperor, off with his head. It was quite often the case that the Greens and the Blues were involved in those popular riots and demonstrations against imperial power, which were not uncommon. So, yes, they did have political potential, even if it wasn't always put to um,
3: these popular causes. So, one thing you mentioned earlier was about how people would come all over, from all over the Byzantine Empire into Constantinople to learn. So, one question we had from Instagram from Diab uh, Dilarevs was what was life like for teenagers in the Byzantine Empire? I wonder if you have any insight on that. Wow, that's a difficult one.
2: Well, I think if you were a teenager in a peasant family in an agricultural province where your father and mother were farmers and you had a a small agricultural plot, your life would have been pretty hard and pretty straightforward. You would inherit from your parents this plot, and you and your brothers and sisters would have to farm it until... Or do something else uh, in the province with agricultural activity as your basic. The people who were sent to be educated in schools in Constantinople usually had more important relatives either a church official or somebody who'd already had an education and knew a teacher and could introduce you, or somebody who had an administrative job in the province who might be able to promote you and say, um, uh, your son seems very bright, why don't you send him to study with X, or he could live with my cousin Y. These sorts of associations, we often hear about the nephews of bishops, Being sent to Constantinople to go to proper schools to get a decent education so that they too could get into the civil or ecclesiastical administration. There was a lot more social social mobility in the Byzantine Empire, I think, than was available in in Western medieval culture, because the schools were very famous, and because there was a, a not a meritocracy, but the cleverer kids could get ahead if they did something particularly well so there are examples of horse trainers and particularly good chariot drivers getting jobs in the capital and becoming famous and earning good a good living because they were particularly good with horses so you can imagine there were there were possibilities
3: I wonder if we could have a little bit of chat about some of the emperors of the Byzantine Empire. It's a perennially popular topic, but just one question is from Instagram from Annalena Naugle, and they ask, Who would be considered the best emperor of the Byzantine Empire? And actually, as well, we've got another one on Instagram from Mama Ladybird Ladybird, who asks, Who were the female leaders? So I just wonder if maybe we could chat through some of the names we should be aware of. Right.
2: So we've mentioned Constantine the Great, Constantine I, the founder of Constantinople. He had a very long life and achieved a great deal. People may not uh, admire him very much, but he was the founder. So it's important to remember him. And his sons fought over the inheritance, but that his family ruled through till the end of the fourth century. And basically, there seems to have been an understanding that the emperor's wife was a very important figure because Christian doctrine had insisted that marriage was a sacred bond and that the husbands should remain with their wives and whatever else they did. if If the wives produced children and if they produced sons, and the sons of emperors had a very good chance of becoming emperor. And the women were understood, the wives were understood to be the link. They were the, They carried the dynasty forward. And so every time we find a uh, 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 one family failing to rule and another taking over a new dynasty, it's uh, critical to watch the wives of the emperors. And as long as they produce sons and as long as they hold on um, as widows if their, their husbands die... Some of these women have a very, very important role and they use it and abuse it very effectively. So among the women, we should note Theodora, who is the wife of the emperor Justinian. He ruled in the middle of the 6th century and she's famous because one of the, lo- of the contemporary historians wrote an absolutely scandalous account of their marriage. This is the historian called Procopius, And his history was so scandalous and so offensive that it could never be published in his lifetime. And it was only found centuries later when people said, oh, it can't be by Procopius. I mean, you know, he was a decent, upstanding sixth century historian. On the contrary, this is the history of how wicked they were these people, Justinian and Theodora. And so we have snapshots of her basically as a prostitute, a young prostitute working in the city to entertain regular people. And she wasn't even a very good flute player, he says. Nonetheless, she became the wife of Justinian. And I suspect that that was because Justinian too came from a rather lowly background, his uncle had been Emperor, but he was raised to uh, the throne by a good education, precisely what Constantinople offered. But he had a pretty poor taste and he liked this cheerful, adventurous and energetic young woman, and he married her. so they're a very important couple are uh, Justinian and Theodora. but in every century that it seems to me there's an emperor that you could particularly admire and there are some failures, and there are lots of empresses who are very admirable and do a a really fantastic job. So it's very good to discover that these women held real power and exploited it very well. Uh, Empress Irene, at the end of the 8th century, took a very important step in Christian theology, and she insisted upon the veneration of icons and had them restored to their place of great honor. But 80 years earlier, a very distinguished military general who became Leo III had introduced the iconoclast um, banning of icons and had saved the empire from almost certain uh, decline and conquest by the Muslims. So we have to see that in every century, there's probably one outstanding emperor and another very important empress. I can't pick a favorite, but you have to say that Basil I was a very extraordinary figure. He started as a stable boy. He was one of those who made a career by looking after horses, and he became such a famous uh, horse tamer and groom that he was uh, adopted by the Emperor Michael III, and he became his friend, and then he decided that he'd rather be emperor in place of his friend, so he had him murdered. That's a very Byzantine story. But it it, it put him on the throne, and he ruled for many years,
3: and his son succeeded him. That kind of lends itself to another a common uh, search question, actually, where you said, it's a traditionally Byzantine story. And there's this kind of perception when you say something is Byzantine, and it implies it's really complex, like labyrinthine. So where does that idea come from? And does it have any basis in history? I think there are two ways of looking at this. One is that the
2: Byzantine court in Constantinople was the only medieval court in the Western hemisphere, apart from China. It was the only major court that had a ceremonial with costumes, with regalia, with ceremonies and processions and amazing set pieces for banquets and uh, all sorts of activities which were very highly choreographed and very brilliantly set up with colours, with music, singers, everything that uh, we associate with a very powerful ruler. And that notion of power expressed symbolically in these very major events that took place frequently on a Christian, Christian ce- um, celebrations, uh, particularly at Easter, for example. But nonetheless, that, that court was a hub of intrigue, everybody wanting to get ahead, all the different courtiers competing with each other to win the favor of the emperor or the empress. And sometimes the children of the emperor all competing for the same thing. And so it was a a center of enormous power and everybody wanted a slice of the pie. And quite a number of the visitors from the West expressed their jealousy, their envy, their admiration, but it was admiration through gritted teeth. They didn't really want to admire these Greek-speaking emperors with all their finery. They didn't really want to admire their churches and their art. They didn't really want to think about how they used Greek and what they knew because they quoted Homer and all this Aristotle and Plato, they didn't really want to say this is a great center of learning. They were jealous. And they went home and they said to the Bishop of Rome, these people are heretics. They speak Greek. They have all sorts of customs that we would never allow. They have all these eunuchs, castrated men who organize the court. It's a, it's a dreadful place and the women are too powerful and so on and so on. So they gave the Byzantines a very bad name in the West. And although we know perfectly well that great rulers like Charlemagne admired the Byzantine art and its culture and wanted desperately to learn Greek and understand what, they, what the Byzantines were studying, many lesser rulers were just envious. And so there was a Problem for the Byzantines, who were undeniably proud, stuck up people who wanted to show that they were very um, great achievers and they had a great empire and they had this extraordinary center of patronage. And they wanted to convert all non Christians to Christianity and they took it very seriously as a Christian duty. And they spread Roman law and they spread good traditions um, among people who'd never been part of the Greco-Roman world. So they did a great deal for the rest of Europe and Russia and uh, the Near East uh, in the same way as the Chinese emperors did. But there was was nothing else that was quite like it um, in the West. And I think it meant that people there were constantly looking to this city. There were rumours, you know, that there was so much gold, they didn't know what to do with the gold, they paved the streets with gold. Ridiculous rumours that were not true. But it is correct that in the the Byzantine Empire, um, the gold currency was sustained at a very reliable uh, level and people continued to pay their taxes in it. And the gold circulated through the empire and was very, very much admired in the West where they only had a silver currency and they could not um, extract taxation and arrange a similarly sophisticated type of administration.
3: That's such a fascinating answer and also a really good kind of link because we've had lots of questions about the relationship between the Byzantine Empire and its neighbours just to touch on your point at the end there, one was from Owen Cross on Instagram. He asked, why was the Byzantine Empire so wealthy compared to Western Europe? And just inferring from the answer there, that was more perception, or was it very literally rich? It was rich. And I think one of the reasons
2: why it was rich was that it has had this administration to extract all the things that go to support a wealthy Uh, society. It conserved its gold supplies. It exploited all other precious metals and controlled the minting of coin, which was only done under um, imperial uh, license in mints that were set up by imperial officials. Uh, So it was a very centralized economy in which um, the money that was raised in taxation could be invested in very specific things so they invested a great deal in in building in building beautiful churches in building very impressive palaces in building great fortifications and sustaining roads and for armies and navies and so on but they also invested in these workshops for the production of silk When they finally learned about how silk could be made from silkworms, they planted mulberries, mulberry trees, white mulberries that give the leaves that the mulberries, the mulberries, silkworms eat. And then they make a cocoon and then you unwind the cocoon and you have your silk thread. That was the secret that China knew from centuries back. But it was discovered at and then exploited in Byzantium by the planting of these enormous plantations of mulberry, which is the absolute necessity for silk production. And they then wove silks, and these were very spectacular. Purple silks could only be worn by the imperial family. Crimson and yellow and green and blue and other colored silks could be worn by other officials. And everything was in a hierarchy of rank. So once you got your new blue outfit, you knew you'd moved up a rank. You were then identified by a higher rank than somebody who wore an orange outfit or whatever. So the hierarchy also encouraged that notion of ambition to succeed, to make money, to invest it well. And they didn't invest in as much in agriculture but they always made sure that there was enough to eat. And on the occasion of the occupation of Egypt, by, first by the Persian army and then by the Arabs, Egypt had supplied wheat from the Nile Valley to Constantinople. And when that wheat fleet no longer arrived once a year in Constantinople, people would have starved because bread was absolutely a basic of their diet but the emperor went out and found additional supplies of corn and barley and oats, which were not considered as good for bread as wheat. And they, they this is what they called second-rate bread. They didn't like it because it was brown. But he made sure that they got bread, and bread was continued to be baked in the city every day so that people had their basic foodstuff. And that was another of those attentions to the well-being of the of imperial subjects which was absolutely critical to their survival their pride and their own investment in the success of the empire and the wealth that was generated may have been very much um uh, a consequence of Uh, high-ranking officials at the court deciding how to use the money, but there was no doubt that they drew on all the resources of the empire in a very centralized fashion to make the most of them. And they succeeded um, to survive over very difficult periods when there were external enemies and so on, because they had uh, invested in fortresses, in armies, in organisation, weaponry, um, in order to defend Byzantium.
3: You mentioned about the colour hierarchy. So one expression that um, people frequently Google is born in the purple with relation to Byzantine emperors. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what that is
2: yes it's a very, that's a very good question what it reflects is the fact that they built a special maternity room in the imperial palace that was lined with purple. We don't know whether this was the purple stone from uh, the Mons porphyry in Egypt or whether it was purple drapes or marble of a purple color. But anyway, it was a special medical unit where the empresses were to give birth. So they didn't have to go to hospital. The doctors came to them, and they gave birth in this very special purple chamber. And the children that were born in the purple chamber were called Born in the Purple. And usually, if it's a son, this is the, the son that is going to inherit his father's uh, empire. So he's that's a very, very important extra. But sometimes the children had been born to the emperor and his wife before he got to the palace, before he became emperor. And those children were never called born in the purple, but sometimes the sons did inherit. And the daughters were also called born in the purple, although they were never as important as the boys.
3: And did that um, appellation have any significance in terms of their standing in society? Oh yes, I think anything
2: associated with purple because it was a color reserved to the imperial family. Anything associated with purple gave you a very high up a very high standing and it was respected because it was so restricted. Uh, on the occasions when emperors would go out into the city in disguise, we learn about this it's actually quite common among medieval em- um, rulers. From time to time, they get interested in hearing what people are talking about, whether what they're saying particularly about their rulers. And the emperors, sometimes there's an account of an emperor going out into the streets in disguise. So, of course, on that occasion, he put on a black cloak and looked very insignificant and wandered around, listening to what people were saying. If, if he was going to go out um, on an official expedition or on an official ceremony or in a procession to a church or anything like that, he had to wear the appropriate robe. And these were nearly always either purple or decorated with purple so that that association remained absolutely clear. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So they understood that they had to acknowledge and give uh, thanks for achievements that had occurred before Christ when Christianity was not yet uh, a faith. And therefore, they could combine, very in a very brilliant way, they could combine a deep theological commitment to Christianity with a broad understanding of the importance of ancient Greek culture.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire, you need indeed. Sticking with the theme
3: of the Byzantine Empire's relationships to the wider world, on Facebook we saw Marzek asked, What was the Byzantine relationship with the West? Now we've spoken a little bit about how the West viewed the Byzantines, but I maybe wonder how that cultural influence worked the other way as well.
2: Yes, it was very problematic because the Greek language which was spoken in throughout the Byzantine world, of course, it had been spoken in most parts of Greece and the Near East um, for centuries, ever ever since Alexander had taken Greek culture to India. So there was a very, very large area where Greek was spoken. And of course, all educated Romans spoke Greek. It's quite wrong to think that they only spoke Latin. In In ancient Rome, all educated people were bilingual. And most people in Constantinople were bilingual. Constantine, it is said, because he was born in the Balkans and worked a lot in the Roman army, was much more familiar with Latin than Greek. But on the other hand, the people that he ruled over in Constantinople were mainly Greek speakers. And gradually, Latin declined. And knowledge of Latin became one of those very unusual things that was reserved to people who could study old books. And the dominant language became Greek. And in that process, the Greek church, um, the church of the Near East, developed a theology that was also all written in Greek. And it became less and less accessible to the those who knew Latin, and it became less and less important for Christians in the West who used Latin as their main language. So this linguistic division between Greek in the East and Latin in the West really colored a lot of the relations that the Byzantines had with Western rulers and with Western ecclesiastical officials, mainly the Pope in Rome. The bishops of Rome Led the Christian Church in the churches in the West, and they were regarded as the heirs of Saint Peter and the most important leaders of Christianity in the West. And the Bishop of Constantinople, the Patriarch, was a sort of jumped-up bishop who hadn't. It wasn't Constantinople was not an apostolic foundation. Alexandria and Antioch were, and Jerusalem was where Jesus had lived and died. So there, was a, there were other centers in Eastern Christianity that had a bigger claim to fame. But the Bishop of Constantinople demanded a very high position in the hierarchy because he ruled over the capital city where the emperor was based. And everybody said, "Well, of course, the, where the emperor lives, his residence must have a very high-ranking bishop." So they promoted him through, uh, and he became as important as the Pope of Rome. But that rivalry between the Patriarch and the Pope was another reason why relations were often very strained. Then the moment of of, of real division, which occurs, there are several big divisions in the first seventh centuries of Christianity. But in the eighth century, a very distinctive division broke out, a separation between East and West, when the emperors of the dynasty founded by Leo III, called the Iconoclasts, the Isaurians, set up a new theology, which was that the images that people had venerated for years led only to idolatry, and therefore they must be banned because idolatry was forbidden by the second commandment. Thou shalt have no graven images. You must not bow down before them. So graven images, created images of Christ, his mother, the saints, and so on, were banned. And there was some destruction, and there was a good deal of controversy over this. But in the West... Where there had not been such a great cult of these icons, there was a determined opposition, real resistance to the iconoclasts. And so iconoclasm in the East became another cause of schism, a real deep division between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. And I think it's at that point that we start beginning to think of the Greek Orthodox as opposed to the Latin Catholics, and although it was all sorted out and patched up and resolved after much negotiation, the, the division that had been caused over icons was uh, a spark for a different sort of division, which became entirely political and military, and which led to the rise of uh, Charlemagne, King of the Franks, who was then crowned Emperor of the Romans. By Pope Leo III in the year 800. And that's another of those marking points in Western medieval history which do indicate that things are going differently in the West. And, of course, the idea that there could be an emperor of the Romans in the West who spoke Latin when there was an emperor in Constantinople who was the emperor, according to the Byzantines, this meant a rivalry on a new political level. And it led to military battles and fights and much, much greater separation between East and West.
3: It's great to cover off uh, about the iconoclasm there because that's another popular search area. Um, For people within the Byzantine Empire, what would iconoclasm have meant for them?
2: I think if they lived in Constantinople and they were... Uh, attuned to what was going on in the palace and what the decrees, um, they could understand what had been decreed, and they felt obliged to follow what the patriarch said was correct. They saw that the patriarch who supported icons had been sent into exile. He'd been replaced by a man who said, icons lead to idolatry. We must ban them. Take them down. Do not let them be in your houses. Don't let them be in your churches. Do not venerate them." Now, for those people who wanted to hide their icons and secretly venerate them, of course they did. I'm sure they did. But there were a whole lot of people who didn't have icons or who didn't think that they were very important, didn't find them useful in their Christian uh, devotion. We read a lot in the sources of the time about individuals who felt that by addressing their prayers to icons, they could actually make a more meaningful co- communication with the divine. And frequently, these are women who use images of female saints or the Virgin Mary, and this, in this way, they feel that their messages, their um, prayers are getting through in a much more effective way. And of course, there were many, many men who were very devoted to icons. And they had icons of their patron saints. Frequently, if you were named after a saint like Andrew, you would have an icon of Saint Andrew and so on. But there were lots of people who said "If if the emperors are correct and the patriarch has told us we have to put them away, this is what we have to do in order to survive. We do not wish to be led into idolatry and heresy. We must do what we're told. And I'm sure there are lots of people for whom it was neither a very important question. And therefore they said, yes, we've had lots of changes before. We've had lots of different definitions of what we're supposed to believe. This is just another change and we go along with it. We don't really care. But the interesting thing is that a lot of the soldiers who fought for the iconoclast emperors truly believed that it was the iconoclasm, the destruction of icons or the removal of icons, which had made it possible for them to win victories, military victories. And they praised the Emperor Constantine V, who was a great military leader and won many victories. And they remembered him. And there is a very striking moment when there was a Uh, an anxiety about a Bulgarian attack in the early ninth century. An attack on Constantinople was, people were all worried, is it going to happen? Where are they coming from? And the soldiers, the old soldiers that had fought under Constantine V said, we will go to his grave and call on him to rise up and lead us again. They wanted to be inspired by the same enthusiasm that they'd felt before. And they went to the imperial tombs and they tried to break down uh, the, 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 the door so that they could get in and call on the emperor, their hero, who was the iconoclast Constantine V. And that shows that there was a very deep commitment to iconoclasm, not because of icons, but because of what it was associated with, which was military victory, conquering the enemy, winning battles, and not getting worried about these Bulgarians advancing towards the Great Walls of Constantinople, which they couldn't—they couldn't—they um, couldn't get through. They couldn't—they could never get into Constantinople. The Bulgars.
3: Staying with religion, on Instagram, LJ Lifko asked, "How responsible was Christianity for suppressing ancient Greek knowledge?" And I suppose there's also a wider question there on going back to the time of Constantine, almost when. You've got this essentially Roman population, and then Christianity is introduced. And you've so how does Christianity fit in with Roman ways of life?
2: Yes, it's a very good question. Um, I think it's quite complicated because that through the fourth century, although. Constantine and his mother, Helena, had insisted that Christianity should be accepted, that churches should be built, that the Christians should be free to to, to worship after the great bouts of persecution under Diocletian, uh, Constantine's predecessor. There had been a great outpouring of, of devotion and a good deal of theological discussion about how people should be taught to be Christian. There was this notion that Christians were better people. They lived good lives. They were full of love and affection, and they did not fight each other. Unfortunately, of course, this was not the way it worked out because there were always differences of opinion. So Christianity developed within the Roman Empire in different centers with slightly different emphases, and frequently the theologians criticized each other and didn't agree with each other, and there were schisms and uh, excommunications and lots of bad feeling between the Christians who lived in Egypt, for example, and those who lived in Antioch, and those that lived out in the countryside where they were more inspired by local holy people who Uh, There were these um, saints who climbed up pillars and lived on the top of pillars, stylite saints. And there were holy men who lived in caves, and there were even holy women who were probably very good. They had certain medical skills, perhaps, or medical knowledge. Women believed that these holy women could help them, could heal them, cure them. And they took their children to these shrines and prayed for help. So there were different sorts of centers of Christianity in cities and in the countryside, and undoubtedly many different interpretations of of Christian faith. And they all developed and grew and expanded as the cults of the ancient gods, based on temples and priests and animal sacrifice, as that world gradually declined. We can see temple observance beginning to drop off as the Christian shrines begin to replace them. It's a very slow, long process. It's not complete. Um, Even in the 6th century, there are quite a lot of people who are still devoted to the ancient gods. And so, the church becomes an antagonist, an enemy of the ancient faith and the ancient uh, uh, gods and their cults. But there was always... Always an understanding that a great deal of ancient culture was absolutely uh, the most developed, most sophisticated knowledge of medicine, for example, of drama, how to write drama, of how to uh, record history, of how to train military fighting. All those um, skills had been inherited from the ancient world and they had to be incorporated. And although there was a sense that Christianity became a dominant, the dominant faith and the only uh, belief of most Byzantines, if you were to ask them what poetry they most admired, those that were educated would undoubtedly have said, Homer was the greatest. Homer was the greatest. And after Homer, there were all those other Greek poets and playwrights and and dramatists, and their culture was something that we love to read, and their philosophy was very important. And of course, eventually, the Byzantine theologians would say, we have special prayers today for Plato, because Plato was like a Christian before Christ arrived. He was a good man, and we pray for his soul. So, they understood that they had to acknowledge and give uh, thanks for achievements that had occurred before Christ when Christianity was not yet uh, a faith. And therefore, they could combine, very in a very brilliant way, they could combine a deep theological commitment to Christianity with a broad understanding of the importance of ancient Greek culture. And the church was not able to shut down anything except the most indecent poetry, which uh, was mainly... Um, Uh, homoerotic verses and descriptions of lascivious women or wicked women. Um, But even many of them seem to have survived.
3: One one more Google question that's kind of related to this is about how the empire itself reacts to changes externally. So, Jerome Martin on Facebook asked how the empire adapted culturally and economically to losses in territory. And on a similar vein from Twitter, Diogo Morg asked... In terms of the old Western Roman Empire, would there ever, any point, plans to reconquer those areas? And he mentions uh, Belisarius going on big raids for plunder and glory. So perhaps maybe you could tell us who Belisarius is as well. Yes,
2: <laughs> Belisarius was one of the great generals who served Justinian in the sixth century. So he uh, was a career soldier who became a very distinguished commander by skill, by military skill, by good performance. And he fought on the Eastern Front against the Persians, uh, and he fought against, uh, against the, he fought in the Western Front uh, against the Vandals in Africa, and he reconquered Carthage and took back into imperial control the very rich provinces of North Africa. Uh, North Africa, like Egypt, was another breadbasket, it produced a great deal of wheat and and it produced a great deal of very beautiful pottery that was used on every important uh, dining table among the aristocrats of of Rome. Uh, This African red slipware is very distinctive and some of it is very beautiful. Of course, if you could eat off silver and gold plates, (laughs) you could be, you could show off your Great wealth. But for people of uh, the middling sort and and even some, uh, most aristocratic families, this very distinctive African pottery was um, very very much used and appreciated. So, regaining control of the wheat fields and the pottery supplies of North Africa in the 530s, that was a very significant increase in overall wealth for Justinian. He'd not really put much investment into Belisarius's troops. They had sailed very slowly all the way from Constantinople to Carthage, which is quite a long business, especially when you're taking horses, hundreds of horses for the cavalry and hundreds of extra horses for the the grooms that have to go along to make sure the cavalry are okay and all the foot soldiers who were very sick and hated travelling by sea. However, they got there and Belisarius very brilliantly defeated the Vandal king, regained Carthage, and then took the Vandal king back to Constantinople with all his courtiers and his family. So that was the end of Vandal Africa, and Justinian could see that it was very, a very great asset to regain those wealthy provinces. And he allowed Belisarius, or he sent Belisarius back to Italy to do the same again, and they managed to conquer Sicily quite well, and then they got into southern Italy, and they went up to Naples, and there they got they got they met resistance. And this was the resistance from the Goths, who had been ruling in Italy from the city of Ravenna since the late fifth century. And the Goths were very good fighters, and they put up a real resistance, and Belisarius realized that it was going to be a longer haul. He wasn't going to have a quick victory. And in fact, the recuperation of the Italian provinces was a very, very long business. The Goths were very resilient. One king was conquered and taken off to Constantinople. They elected another and went on fighting. So it was over nearly 20 years of very constant warfare, terrible destruction. Uh, of agriculture, of farming, of cities, of city walls that were raised because the, the resistance had been so extreme. So, very, very destructive. And these were not raids that were very productive. It didn't bring any wealth to Constantinople. On the contrary, it was a constant drain because either Belisarius or his successors would say, We can't get anywhere against these Goths unless you send us more men. We need reinforcements, we need them quickly, and we need a lot of money because if we can't fight them, we're going to try and buy them off with bribes. Because that was another thing the Byzantines frequently did because they had accumulated wealth. They would offer pounds and pounds of gold, which would be transported in enormous chests, very well guarded, to be taken to these barbarian courts where they would tell the barbarian king, here is the gold now, you spend the gold and don't attack us, and that's the agreement. And it often worked. Bribery was quite effective. By bribery, diplomacy, and trying very hard to spare extra troops, the battle for Italy continued, but it was not as a, a quick, successful raid, and it and it left Italy very, very impoverished and destroyed, so, Belisarius had a certain brilliance which was recognised and he was uh, greatly praised. But his second raiding activity in Italy was not as good and he had to be replaced. And it was, in fact, um, very much later that a, an elderly general a eunuch called Narses um, that the Goths were finally defeated in the 550s. But it had been a long campaign and left everybody exhausted.
3: On the subject of war, what internet users would love to know what Greek fire is? I seem to remember reading a quote somewhere that there are three things like a Byzantine emperor couldn't share, the imperial regalia in princess, the hand of an imperial princess and secret Greek fire, and somehow Greek fire was the only one they didn't share?
2: Yes, <laughs> that's very true. Um, they they didn't share Greek fire, but in fact the Arabs discovered Greek fire quite quickly. This was a, a very interesting um, military weapon, p- type of napalm, which could be uh, manufactured, which could be stored in containers with a spout and would then be forced with uh, under pressure um, from the spout uh, towards the enemy. And it was used in, milit- in maritime warfare because it burnt on water. So if you could shoot it across water towards ships that were advancing from smaller boats that would, could be rowed quite close to the enemy, you might see them Astonished, first that it just burned on the water, and second that if the wind blew in the right direction, your boat might be on fire very quickly. And this is indeed what happened several times when Constantinople was surrounded and the the military were on land, and then they sent out their naval forces, and the naval forces met these smaller boats with Greek fire. And there's one very famous manuscript illustration of the people in the small boat. One lot are sort of pumping the bellows or providing water pressure that will actually cause the, the liquid to spurt out of the container um, and they have to light it as it goes. So somebody's there with a torch lighting the oil as it goes spurting out and trying obviously not to let it burn him. <laughs> but once it's got, you've got enough pressure behind it and you can project it, this Greek fire is very destructive. And indeed, it later becomes used in fireballs that you can throw over city walls with a catapult and things like that. So we read a lot about it in Arab warfare as well, but in the West, it was not something that was as developed. And certainly Greek fire was one of those things, that state secrets, that was not to be allowed. Nobody was to be allowed to, to know how to how to make it. Um, marrying an imperial princess, I'm afraid lots of people got to marry an imperial princess. They were sent all over the world as diplomats and had a miserable time, most of them. And the regalia, well, this purple and the crowns and the long, long diamond, uh, pearl pendants, pearl earrings, and uh, some of the gold decorations, they were pretty pretty stunning. And crowns were occasionally sent to uh, other rulers, but the uh, Byzantines wanted to keep all that to themselves.
3: We've had a number of questions in concerning the Byzantine Empire's relations with its kind of the immediate lands to the west of Constantinople. So Serbia, Romania, or well, what is now Serbia, Romania, those areas. Thomas Horvath on Instagram particularly wants to know about the interactions between the Byzantines and the Magars. L.K. Whitehead simply asks, what were they, presumably Byzantines, up to in Romania? And uh, Matko Jelic was curious about one particular document, um, Constantine VII's De Administrado Imperio. On its interpretation of early history of the southern slabs. So I just wonder, could you give us a bit of an overview about that region and Byzantine influence there?
2: Mm. Yes, very good points. Um, and we should have mentioned Constantine Seventh as one of the great emperors. Uh, he's one of the outstanding emperors of the 10th century. Um, he was a porphyrogenitus, born in the purple but he was born to his mother before she had married his father, who was the emperor, and this was a very grave problem. So, he had a very miserable childhood being shunted from aside by uh, officials and eventually replaced by another emperor, and he devoted himself to learning. And he wrote he read a great deal and he wrote um, collected a lot of information to make an encyclopedia of all the information that you would need to know in 57 bo- volumes quite impressive encyclopedia so he was a, a scholar and he was forced rather to become a, a scholar and a, a person interested in book learning because he wasn't permitted really to practice being an emperor but eventually he got to be emperor the other usurping family was turned out and he turned off the throne and he got back to rule. And he wrote this book on how to govern the empire for his own son, Romanos, who succeeded him in due course. And it's like a survey of all the different provinces of the empire and their histories. And one of the things that's very interesting is that Constantine VII obviously tried to research where all the peoples who now live in the areas of the Balkans that you've mentioned, Serbia, Croatia, Romania, Bulgaria. He was very interested in their histories and how they came to be there and what, their, what they spoke and what their main cities were and who, what famous people were associated with them. So his account of these provinces is one of the most detailed set of traditional information, may not all be reliable. And may, some of it may be indeed quite mythic, but he did try to put it all together. And so there is a very long section on the Croats and the Slavs uh, who lived on the Adriatic coast, uh, on the e- eastern Adriatic coast, where uh, Slovenia, Croatia, Montenegro, and so on. Albania and inland Serbia, and then further inland Bulgaria onto the Black Sea. And Romania didn't exist, of course, it was mainly occupied by what we call Bulgaria. But the Byzantines were very anxious to make sure that all these peoples had good missionary activity to bring them to Christianity and indeed many, many of those regions are still documented by Greek Orthodox churches built in the Orthodox style following what we call Byzantine, the Byzantine aesthetic. And they were decorated by fresco painters and icon painters and uh, mosaicists who understood that tradition very well. So, there was a very great effort to... Bring what the Byzantines regarded as their superior civilization to the peoples who had not been had the benefit of Greco-Roman uh, history and had come from tribal regions much, much, much further east. I mean, even as far as Mongolia and and the Chinese border. So there was there certainly was a long movement of peoples across the steppe land, across the Pripet marshes, and into what we now think of as Central and Northern Europe. And the Magyars come into that category. Indeed, the Byzantines recognised the Magyars as an independent ruling party and made alliances with them, which involved marrying imperial princesses to their ruler. And they did indeed send a Byzantine
3: crown to Hungary. So heading towards uh, the tail end of the Byzantine Empire, We probably should touch on um, the relationships between the empire and the crusading state. This is something that Charlotte Bartley on Instagram and Ken Pickering on Facebook both asked about. What could you tell us about how those relationships worked? And also, there's one particular query actually that came in from D'Algoboy on Instagram. Is it valid to argue that the crusades helped to fundamentally undermine the Byzantine polity?
2: Yes, This is a very disputed topic, and I think uh, my position is perhaps quite odd and at odds with the majority. I feel very strongly that there was a terribly difficult relationship between the crusaders um, of the First Crusade and the Byzantine Emperor because they tried very hard to unite as Christians against the Turks, against the infidel and to regain Jerusalem for Christianity, and they succeeded against all the odds, but relations subsequently between the Crusaders who were established as a co- colonial power over Jerusalem and the kingdom of Jerusalem and spreading into Cyprus and northern Syria there were there were very poor the, the relations were never as good as they should have been the Christian Divisions that we've already talked about meant that there was always suspicion about what the Greeks said and what the Latins said and whether these people were really truly Christian or they were doing something that was heretical and of course, customs were different, and they saw people eating different uh dedicated bread, you know some have leavened bread and some have unleavened bread oh, all these problems that uh are, are lurking in the background whenever we talk about the relations between Western and Eastern Christians. But by the time of the Fourth Crusade, we can see quite clearly that the Venetians are taking a very decisive role. They build the ships which are going to transport the Crusaders. They're supposed to go to Alexandria and attack the Arabs through Egypt and instead, lo and behold, they end up at the walls of Constantinople saying, we've brought you your emperor. This is the young Alexius. He's a real emperor. Get rid of that man and put this Alexis back on your throne. And the Byzantines inside the city of Constantinople say, we don't recognize him. And there's a standoff. And at that point, the Venetians who know, Ven- who know Constantinople very well they have a settlement there, they have trading rights, they are very important merchants, and they've been living in the city for some time, and they decide now is the moment to teach these Byzantines a lesson. We'll actually go in and take what they owe us in form in the form of loot. And so there's a terrible sack of Constantinople in twelve oh four, and it is very it marks a very, very clear, distinctive end to the byzantine period of expansion to the the greater glory of byzantium and as i said even after they regained the city in 1261 uh, the history of byzantium is not the, is not as rich it's not the same however the crusaders were i mean they did they they maintained a latin empire for uh, nearly 60 years and um, and that left its mark uh, there are some very beautiful Frescoes of Saint Francis of Assisi, uh, and there are uh, other. Evid- there's other evidence of the Latin uh, occupation of Constantinople, uh, and nice coins. I know somebody was interested in coins. They minted coins um, of of their own uh, with uh, with Latin inscriptions, um, but they used a lot of the old uh, Byzantine models as well. So it's a nice mixture.
3: Very nice. That was Jules Ben Simpson on Instagram, and I'm I'm sure he'll be very glad to have heard that answer. Another question on Instagram has come from Mesek Christian, who asked where the archives of the Byzantines were kept and how did they survive after 1453? So, uh, I mean, 1453 is the end date. Uh, if i suppose if, could you also tell us what happens at 1453
2: well the archives of the byzantine state did not survive 1204 the sack by the the sack by the fourth crusaders was very destructive and the, in, the curious paradox is that we know that the Byzantine administration was extremely bureaucratic and every legal decision that was made had to be carved in three, written out in three copies and imperial decrees often carved in stone. And yet we have so little that survives. So of these copies in triplicate, the ones that did survive were the ones that were given to monasteries. Who came, when the monks came to Constantinople to gain either control of land or of ships in which they shipped their their produce to Constantinople or to the markets, or other privileges that the monasteries received. And these are mainly the monasteries on Mount Athos, which is still a centre of monastic activity. Because they were monks and they had uh, responsibility for their Institutions, they put these parchment documents in chests and they preserved them. And all the other copies of those documents are lost. One must certainly have been in the imperial archive in Constantinople, and the other would have been in the administrative offices of the authority that had granted the decision. So we are absolutely without Byzantine archives and we have to make do with a very fragmentary record as preserved in monastic archives. And in one or two other instances, we can reconstruct documentation, but it's very, very sad, very difficult. And 1453 was indeed the end, but Interestingly, the Ottoman Turks were very much more interested in perpetuating the bureaucratic administration of the empire. And so they took over a lot of Byzantine practices, for example, the registration of land, the measurement of land, the the keeping of provincial records so that they knew who owned which bit of land and then thus how much tax that person would pay. And all that passed into Ottoman tradition and can be observed. And so there are ways of getting back to what the Byzantines had done by looking at the early Ottoman deft tears as they're called the books of provincial landholding which tell us who paid what tax and what they owned how many farms how many orchards etc cetera, etc cetera. all those details which we know were recorded by the byzantines <laughs> of which we have only fragments
3: this question might be a bit more of a challenge than what we've just said but on Instagram Tracy would like to know what do we know about this empire now that we didn't 5 years ago and maybe beyond the boundaries of five years. But what have we recently learned that's been a surprise?
2: Well, I think there's one thing that we always keep learning, which is that the past is ever more interesting, and there's always something new to learn. So it's not very much about what we've suddenly learned, but that we always keep learning. I've just spent a long time writing a, a history of the city of Ravenna. And Ravenna is a A small city in northern Italy, but it happened, it it was made the Byzantine outpost um, in in 540. And for 200 years, it was the seat of the Byzantine governor sent from Constantinople to administer quite a substantial area. um, And again, a rich area which is 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 you know was beneficial to uh, it was good for the empire to have it but it was also the way it was also the hinge between constantinople and the west and diplomats and mercenaries and administrators and generals all passed through ravenna on their way to visit the franks for example in northern europe and so on so i've learned a lot about the role of that city which is which i hadn't known before and there's another area in which we are always discovering new things, which is that lots of museums have, have material culture objects that they haven't catalogued as Byzantine because they didn't know they were Byzantine. But we now know that the seals of administrators that we use to seal their documents give their names and their titles and sometimes a date and these can be used to recreate a hierarchy of administration throughout the empire and for example just recently i read about seals from a turkish provincial museum just seven but lo and behold there are two characters that i've actually known from i've 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 been tracing from somewhere else so i'm absolutely thrilled to find their seals which are now published and which show what position they held in that area. And that's why the seals ended up in that museum. But inscriptions are being found all the time. And everything archaeological, of course, that can be dug up, there's a lot more to dig. So archaeology is one of the sources which is never ending. And we're never going to dig up all the Byzantine Empire. So we've got a lot of work to do.
3: (laughs) Brilliant. Um, One very final question. Is there any truth to the story that the Byzantines introduced the fork or reintroduced the fork to Europe. It's correct. They did. And it was a Byzantine princess, not a,
2: not actually a princess of the imperial family, but an aristocratic princess who was married to the son of the Doge. And she came back to Venice at the end of the 10th century, and she had a little golden fork. And she put it on her plate, and she carried her food to her mouth. And people said, Oh, how disgusting. Why can't she eat with her fingers like everybody else?
0: That was Judith Heron. Her history of the Byzantine Empire, Byzantium, The Surprising Life of a Medieval Empire, was published by Penguin in 2008. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on the history of women's (laughs) self-portraits.